Let's go to the Lord again in prayer before we move back into John's gospel. Father, we are thankful for the assurance that we have in Christ. And now as we open your word, Father, assure us more and more of the finished, final, glorious, and gracious work that is to be found in Jesus, that our hope, both now and forever, would be in him. Open our ears to hear, our minds to understand, and our hearts to receive glorious things from your word which cannot pass away and will not fail until they accomplish all that you have sent it forth to accomplish. We rest, we hope, and we pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you will, open to John's gospel again as we jump back in. We'll begin this morning in chapter 7 and then we will work our way down through chapter 8, verse 11. Beginning in chapter 7, verse 53, John writes, Everyone went to his own home. This is after Jesus' latest engagement with the religious leaders. Everyone went to his own home. Chapter 8, verse 1, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who was without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone. And the woman, where she was, in the center of the court, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. The study of John's gospel, I would hope you would agree with this statement that it is proved to be a rich study in the glories of Jesus Christ. Over and over and over again, we have seen the wonderful glories reflected in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. John has done a masterful job under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, documenting his thesis and his premise that the Messiah is indeed Jesus Christ who comes from Nazareth. We've discovered summits of glorious truth to be scaled, and we have also seen the depths of man's depravity. 
that are to be avoided as lost men and women have rejected Jesus. At every turn, Jesus Christ is glorified and made to be seen as the pinnacle of what we learned in those first 18 verses of chapter 1. That those those roadmaps in those first verses that painted for us a, a chart to navigate the rest of the gospel with, giving us the pivotal truths about Jesus that we needed to be on the lookout for, if you'll remember back that far. But there is one truth that stands out in particular in John chapter 1 that is replete here this morning for our consideration. In John 1.14 we read this, And the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. What glory is that? Glory as of the only begotten, the one proceeding forth from the Father. And what does that glory look like? It's full, John says, of grace and truth. Here again in this text this morning is another example of that pinnacle statement. We have seen his glory, glory as the only one begotten or proceeding forth from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. The truth so far in John's gospel has continued to offend those who do not belong to Jesus. The Pharisees, the religious leaders are perpetually offended. They'd fit in great today. Offended by everything that Jesus claims to be true about himself. And it has also been full of grace, changing those who do believe. And whether it is the rejection of truth stated or the grace of things received, the glory of Jesus Christ has been reflected time and time and time again. And it is to those realities the grace and the truth that I want to direct your attention from verse 14 this morning in a unique way. As is our habit and is our commitment to do each Lord's Day is to go verse by verse sequentially through books of the Bible to study and mine out all that God has for us in the books that he has written and the way that he has written them. And so in that commitment and in that tradition and in that way we have come to a passage this morning that as an expositor of God's word I desire to be faithful to the text I cannot let go unnoticed and yet as a pastor I want to approach these verses in a way that is clarifying and not confusing some of you here this morning are aware of what I'm speaking of because you've already asked me about it Pastor, what are you going to do when we get to chapter 7, verse 53, down through chapter 8, verse 11? Because almost all of you will notice that these verses are in brackets. And you may be wondering, why are those brackets there? And so we're faced with a challenge this morning of addressing that, but addressing it in the context of, of the entire gospel and what John has clearly stated in chapter 1, verse 14. The reason that these brackets exist in almost all of your Bibles, the only exception would be those Bibles that 
result from the Texas Receptus family of Greek manuscripts, the ancient Bibles and manuscripts from which come primarily the King James Version or the New King James Version this morning. All but those two versions will have the brackets around them. Why is that? It's because these 12 verses do not exist in the oldest and best manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. They came about to be added into John's gospel somewhat mysteriously and at an undefined time, just over time being added in. And I just want to give you that just briefly, not to destroy your confidence in Scripture, because I think you'll see that there's no reason for that. But I do want you to be aware of why they're here and why that it, in many traditions, is left out of Bibles altogether. These 12 verses are completely absent from any Bible prior to 600 A.D. They, they do not exist in any New Testament scripture prior to the year 600. And when they finally do start finding their way into the scriptures, we find that they don't occur in the Gospel of John. Rather, they're scattered throughout the New Testament. And then over time, they came to be put in one whole story and placed here in John's Gospel. Another reason why we would say that this is probably added later by someone other than John himself is that stylistically the language is different. This does not read or speak like grammatically or linguistically like the rest of John's gospel. It seems foreign as someone else passage in the western part of the world for the first century, no one even bothered to mention it. And from those three centuries, we have men who were intimately familiar with the apostles and closer to the time of the writing of John's gospel, and they say nothing about it at all. In the eastern part of the world, it was not until the 1100s that the first mention of this passage shows up in any commentary or sermons. Thus, most scholars have concluded that it is suspect that John actually wrote this and included it in the original gospel that he penned. We've covered these types of subjects in greater detail on several occasions earlier in the gospel of Mar- or, I'm sorry, of Gospel of John. There is another small little snippet, and I made mention of that and explained to you how those things came to be. On Wednesday nights, we've been going through the doctrine of Scripture and talking about how it is that scientists and scholars and and, uh, theologians over the years have refined the Bibles that we have today so that they are trustworthy and provable as being the inerrant Word of God. And so there's really no reason to fear that somehow our Bibles are not reliable. They are. But that doesn't mean that everything that claims to be Scripture should be included in Scripture without close examination. People shouldn't just be able to say, well, this should be in the Bible. It needs to be tested and proven to be such. I'll give you an example this morning as we think through this together. There is another, this passage. 
passage along with one other in Mark's gospel tend to be the two that stand out on everyone's radar, and that is Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. And I treated that when I preached through Mark's gospel differently than I'm doing this morning. Let me explain why I did that. I didn't preach that at all. I didn't even I didn't even bother with it. And why is that? Because in Mark's gospel, those verses, those eleven verses, introduce theological truths that are nowhere else found in Scripture. And for the same reason, they are suspect as not having been written by Mark or under Peter's guidance in any way, and are thus provable late additions to Mark's gospel. And so I just left those out altogether. But this one I actually read. And this one I actually bring up. Why is that? Because the truths, even if it's not the exact story that was part of John's original gospel, the truth communicated in it is taught through, uh, excuse me, throughout Scripture. That Jesus Christ, according to chapter 1, verse 14, is the God of grace and truth. It does not, it is not like Mark's gospel. It doesn't contradict any other teachings in Scripture. Whoever added that on to Mark does contradict Scripture. This does not. And so while we may not look at it and uh, ascribe to it the same value or the same worth as uh, other parts of Scripture, it does teach the truth about who Jesus is. And so I want us to focus on the truth that is communicated in chapter 1, verse 14, and simply look at these verses as someone's account of how that was exhibited or taught or demonstrated by Jesus. And so to be faithful, I need to say that to you because it is in your Bibles and it is qualified in your Bibles by those brackets. It is disputed, but as a shepherd, I want you to leave here this morning with confidence in your Savior. I don't want to leave it out altogether because the thought is still true from chapter 1, verse 14. I want you to leave with the right opinion of Jesus Christ, even though we need to make a qualification about an extra biblical passage that may have found its way in 1,300 years ago. And so let's do that this morning. I want you to notice that there is a contrast of truth. If we go back to John chapter 1, verse 14, we beheld his glory, the only begotten, the only one proceeding forth from the Father, and he is full of grace and truth. And there is a contrast of truth between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. The irony that we have seen over and over again throughout John's gospel is that those who claim to be the guardians and proponents of truth are actually those who live in lies. They don't believe the truth. In fact, they reject the truth over and over and over again. And they're present here in this passage in John chapter 8. We see the Pharisees again doing what the Pharisees do. Mocking the truth, yet claiming to stand for the truth. The good purveyors of truth are ready to stone a woman for sin. Sin, which 
according to legend, they themselves are not without. And that is why they leave by the end of this narrative. But it's not the only time that the purveyors of truth, the ones who claim to be representing this true and gracious God, have lived outside the bounds of the truth they claim to promote. Rather, they have suppressed others with truth in order to elevate themselves. It is bondage to the point of cruelty. The contrast of their version of truth, these religious leaders, mocks and rejects people in John's gospel of different ethnic origins. Look how they treated the Samaritans. Look how they treated people who were not born into their tribe. With great antipathy, with great hatred, with vitriolic responses, they mock and reject those people. Their version of truth left a crippled man lying in pain for 38 years in chapter 5. 38 years. They don't lift a finger to help this man. Rather, they let him waller in his misery. They have robbed the people of God from the true prophetic witnesses of God's word. They seek to silence the prophets, just as they did John the Baptist. These are people who claim that they do it in the name of truth. They are we stand for truth kind of people. But truth defined by whom? God or themselves? How are they taught? They claim to be so learned and yet are so ignorant as Jesus points out to Nicodemus. Are you not the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand? How could that be? How have they demonstrated their love for the truth? Have they improved the lives of the people they serve? Have they at all advanced the the message of God's redeeming work to them? No. They leave them in abject misery, bondage, cruelty of a hierarchical system. That's the truth that is prevalent in Jesus' day. And may I say that that is consistent with any movement that claims to be purveyors and guardians of truth that is not rooted in Scripture throughout history. It becomes man-centered, it becomes man-interpreted, it becomes all of these things, and it leaves the people under that system in absolute bondage. Some of you know this with the religious backgrounds that you have come out of. You've seen it happen. But on the contrast, and to the contrary, Jesus is the embodiment of truth. Truth that Jesus claims, unlike the Pharisees, that leaves them in bondage. Jesus comes as the proclaimer of truth that liberates, that saves, that heals, that restores. We beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, the revealed one from the Father, full of grace and truth. What did that look like? Jesus says in John, later on in this very chapter, John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. 
Jesus says to the Jews who had believed in him, those who have come out from under this oppressive system, and he says this to them, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The Pharisees never said that. According to them, you will know our truth, and that truth will make you in more bondage. Do this, do that, do the other. Never enough. We've said it before, but it bears repeating again here. This is not the law of Moses they are inflicting upon the people. That is a good and righteous law. This is a law that has added 700 plus laws to the law of Moses enacted upon the people by the time of Jesus. That is oppression. The people thought they were oppressed by Rome. What they were really oppressed by were their own religious leaders. Jesus says, the truth I have come to present will make you free. In verse 836, so then if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Certainly, without fail, forever. These are the truths that Jesus embodies. These are the truths that Jesus has taught. And whoever added these uh, 11 verses to chapter 8, the first 11 verses, were not wrong in the substance that they were trying to communicate. This is absolutely consistent with how Jesus taught, worked, and lived. Jesus is the Son who makes us free Indeed, he comes to bring his saving grace to the most needy of sinners. Satan himself is a committed student of truth so long as it can be used as a bludgeon against you. He is the father of lies, but he also knows more truth than you and I will ever know. He lived with God. Don't forget that. He knows the truth. He has rejected the truth. And Satan loves to use the truth to beat you. He'll tempt you into sin. And then the moment you fall to sin, Satan pulls out the truth and begins to flay you with it. Don't you know that you've sinned? Don't you know God is so angry? He knows the truth, but he is only committed to use it so long as it can be used as a weapon against you, much like the Pharisees. That's why Jesus can say of them, you are of your father, the devil. You're the the sons of the father of lies. What did they lie about? The truth. They didn't promote the truth. They didn't proclaim the truth. Jesus proclaims the truth. Satan is the accuser of the brethren with a pseudo-truth that these people are here trying to use throughout the Gospel of John. And Jesus comes in contrast with that. He says, my truth doesn't condemn, my truth saves. Please note the difference. And the people did notice the difference. That's why Jesus garnered such a following. And why people began to hate him in the religious establishment. Because he was revealing their sham. Jesus comes with truth. Truth that saves. Truth that frees. Why is that? 
because he himself is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is truth. That's what John 1.14 says. That's what Jesus says in John 14.6 himself. He is truth. He is the word, eternal, always in existence, creating everything else by that word. And he has come, listen, to proclaim truth to us. Truth that frees. Truth that saves. He doesn't come with a man's interpretation of truth. He is the truth. Therefore, everything he speaks is truth. He comes with a proclamation and demonstration of all that he is. Therefore, all that he says and all that he does is consistent, undiluted, perfect, redeeming truth. Now, the default setting of your mind and of my mind is that of law. We like lists. We like to be told, do this, do this, do this, and this will be the outcome. Just tell me what to do to make God happy. I'll do it, get him off of my back, and get his blessing. That's how the human mind thinks in its fallen state. Seems counterintuitive, but that's exactly what we want to do. That's why men create idols that they can manage. They create religious systems that they can fulfill. Because they want to be able to check a box and say they've done something. That's the default setting of our mind. And in that strict dichotomy, in that way of thinking, grace and truth are mutually exclusive. We obtain salvation not by grace, but by truth we invent that we can say we have kept, therefore we have earned God's favor. In our fallen way of thinking, in that religious Yet unbiblical and unchristian way of thinking truth is always cold and sterile for the purpose of either inflicting punishment or providing a pride-filled way to justify what we do. But when we go back to John 1.14, we find out that Jesus is not only truth, he is also what? Grace. Saving truth, saving grace. And so between Jesus and these religious leaders, there is always a contrast of truth, but there is a brilliant display of grace. Something they're not capable of, because they've not received it themselves. But Jesus is always displaying that sort of grace by its very definition. Grace is favor given, yet undeserved, unmerited. In fact, we could go so far as to say unable to be earned, unable to be merited in any way. The truth reveals to us not only that it cannot be merited or deserved, but that in Christ, and in Christ alone, grace is freely given and found. 
Jesus reveals that this is his character. This is his nature. Time and time again, I am truth and I am grace. I reveal sin and then I provide the grace for forgiveness of sin over and over and over again. Jesus has revealed that this is his nature. And not only has he revealed it in scripture, he's revealed it right here, right now in this room. We are sitting here, if we believe the gospel, if we believe what scripture says, we sit here this morning, brothers and sisters, forgiven. Recipients of great grace. We sit here assured that our hope is Christ, who pleases the Father, not only in his life, death, and resurrection, but right now as our advocate. He stands before the Father, pleasing the Father in our place. You can't do that, but he can. And he offers to us that position by faith. We sit here this morning changed people. Do any of you ever shudder to think what you would be apart from Christ? You should. We should tremble as to what we would be like and what sin would have done to us had God in His Son, in great grace, not intervened. But He has. So we live with hope in Him. We are redeemed. We no longer are slaves to Satan and to sin if we know Jesus Christ. We've been released from that tyrannical bondage. We sit here this morning placed into the family of God. We're not strangers. We're not enemies. We're sons and daughters. God does not look at us begrudgingly and say, okay, I guess let him in. Could you have him go around the back door to get in? I really can't afford to be seen with people like Brian or people like you. There is no back door into the kingdom of God, only the front door that the Son opens and ushers us into. And we sit here this morning placed in the Son. Because of His gracious work, because of His truthful work, we are brought into the family of God, placed into God's family. Because Jesus came and interjected Himself into our lives as the perfect revelation of the truth and grace that is in God. Jesus has done this over and over in Scripture, and He's done it over and over in this room. We sang it just a moment. This is my story. This is my song. Praising the Savior all the day long. Why? Because He is grace and He is truth. And we hope in Him. This grace that that Jesus brings to us is grace in which there is no turning away. We can't undo it. (laughs) Oh, listen, even as believers, we could find a way to undo it, humanly speaking, couldn't we? But God never abandons us. Ever. It's grace that cannot be undone. His grace came to conquer and accomplish all that it was sent to accomplish in Christ. 
Praise God for that sovereign gift of grace. Like the word of God, Isaiah 55, it will not return void. Jesus will not fail in his mission to provide grace and truth to those who believe. It can't be missed. It can't be lost. Paul, writing to the Romans in chapter 3, he says this in verse 21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace. There it is. That's not the final chapter, that we have fallen short of the glory of God to those who believe we have been justified, declared righteous, declared right with the Father by grace through redemption which is in Jesus Christ. And to those who are in Jesus Christ, Paul will go on in chapter 8, verse 1, and say, there is no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. None. All the sin that God had to punish in you, He's punished in His Son if you believe. God has nothing left to punish. Everything has been punished in Christ Jesus for those who believe. Isn't that wonderful news? God's not angry with you anymore if you believe. If you don't, he still is. But if you believe, there is no more judgment to be faced. There is no more, there is no more penalty for sin. Christ paid for it. And we receive that payment by faith. And by faith alone in Him. Jesus is the embodiment of that. John goes on in chapter 1. Writing after verse 14, he writes this in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. That, that law that the Pharisees loved to claim as their own. And to, you know, add to it. Make it a little more difficult and a little more unattainable so that they looked so holy. That law to flay and condemn sinners. To look down their nose at the, oh, that law that was perverted and twisted away from Moses. Hey, listen. Moses didn't have the final word, John says, because grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Whatever they've done to pervert the law of Moses is not the final word. Grace and truth. Both the law and the fulfillment of the law come through Jesus Christ and is freely offered to all who believe. Pride, man's pride, legalistic religious systems love to say, sin no more and be forgiven. But the gospel and the grace that is in Jesus Christ says this, forgiven, sin no more. Legalistic systems and the pride of people like the Pharisees and the pride of our own hearts, let's be honest. 
loves to say, do, do, do. The gospel says, done. It is finished. Over. Paid for. How? Because the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of truth and grace. Why is that possible? Because God demonstrated his own character towards us. By his gracious choice. We didn't earn it. We don't receive it because we ask for it. God does it. He takes the initiative. He acts towards us. Unmerited grace. Unmerited favor. That God acts with toward us. Unmerited. That's a good word. It's not a word that our pride likes. Our pride wants to say, I did. I have something to boast of. But in Christ, unmerited is a beautiful word. Because it is true, we cannot earn it. We couldn't earn or deserve His coming. We could not earn or merit His revealing to us that, hey, you have a cancer in your body, it is called sin. We didn't earn that. We didn't deserve for God to speak to us ever again after Adam and Eve's fall. But he continued to reveal himself ultimately in his son. We don't deserve, we could not merit not only God speaking, but God speaking through his son to reveal all that he is in the, in the truth and in the saving grace that he brings. Time after time, story after story, testimony after testimony replicates this truth. This room is filled with people this morning whose lives are a replication of that truth. Undeserved, unmerited favor. Redemption brought through Jesus Christ. Aren't you thankful that unlike the Pharisees, Jesus didn't just come and say, you have a problem and then leave. But he came and revealed the problem with a solution. His perfect life in place of our imperfect life. His perfect death to satisfy the Father in place of our own death for our sins, which we committed. His perfect resurrection back to life. His perfect ascension being before the Father even now. Not only is there the revealing of a problem, Jesus brings the solution. And the solution is not in us, but in Him. It's not what we should do, but what he has done. Jesus offers both. The question we must ask this morning is, where do you stand in relation to those truths? Where do you stand in relation to your sin? 
Paul Washer often says when people say to him, hey, I was saved, I have a new relationship to God, he, he always asks him, great, do you have a new relationship to sin? What is your relationship to sin? Has it changed? Are you still lost in your sin, loving your sin, unwilling to forsake sin for forgiveness in Christ? Where do you stand in relation to the Word of God incarnate? Grace and truth personified. Do you believe Jesus to be the Son of God? Do you believe Him to be the perfect sacrifice for your sin? Do you believe Him to be all that He said He is? This is the question you must answer. You must be found in Christ by faith, believing Him. All that He is, all that He said, all that He did. Or we are as without hope and lost and under judgment as anyone possibly could be. Because we are born totally sinful and depraved. Would you trust Christ this morning? Would you believe all that he said about himself? Would you trust in the mercy and the grace that he offers you as the solution to your sin? Would you experience the forgiveness that is offered in him and in him alone? The ultimate revelation of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace to us. In the person of your son, Jesus Christ. May those opening words of John in verse 14. Ring in our ears always. That we know the glory of God. The glory of the one who alone is sent forth from and begotten by the father. And what we have seen in him is this. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. May we trust and lean wholly upon Christ forever. We pray and ask these things in his name. Amen.